All right, welcome to another episode of the Millennial Momentum Podcast. This is your host, Tom Alamo. You can find more info from us at millennialmomentum.net. I'm Tommy Tahoe on Instagram, on Twitter, very active. You can find me there as well. Um, and the whole purpose of this show is to help get you to the next level. In order to do that, you need three things. You know, really persistent hard work ethic, you need a positive attitude, and you need a little momentum, which is forward motion with energy. So I'm hoping that this show, everything I produce, can help be that spark of momentum for you. Hope it can be that for me. I'm trying to strive for bigger and better things professionally and personally. Um, and I appreciate you coming on the journey. I'm not an expert. I'm not a guru, but I like to bring on people that are experts and can help us all get to where we want to be. So um, this is episode 100. I'm not going to skirt around it. It's fucking awesome. Um, you know, I'm really jazzed up, really excited. I did not think um, when I started the podcast in my bedroom uh, with my roommate, Ryan Warner, actually in his bedroom, uh, that we would be uh, be at 100 episodes and get all the downloads that it's gotten. I've met some amazing people from the show, uh, had some great interviews with people that are legends in business and sports and writing um, all across the board. Um, gotten to meet some great mentors through this, some, some amazing support from people uh, that have listened to the show, that have read some of the blogs, that have reached out, um, that have shared... Um, it, it, it's been one of the biggest and one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life has been starting this podcast. So I appreciate anyone here that's listening today. That's listened to anything that I've done in the past. Uh, I appreciate you. I'm very grateful. Um, and you know, I'm looking forward to a big year ahead and some great guests and some great lineups and more content for you that can hopefully again, help you on your path. So with that said, let's get into today's episode uh, Amy Morin is back on the show. She is uh, the guest from episode 83. She's the number one aficionado when it comes to mental strength. She just wrote a new book. This is her third book. Uh, it is called The 13 Things That Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Fascinating book. Interesting topic, especially with you know all of the... Uh, the, the things that are going on uh, in today's culture um, around women. Um, and I think now more than ever, everyone needs to be mentally stronger, um, especially you know, with some of the things that have been stacked up against women. And, and we get into that. And what I love about Amy is that she brings a few different levels to her books and to her talks. And one is research and history um, Right, so so people throughout history that have embodied mental strength, or maybe not as much mental strength as they need. Um, there's the research side of it, where you know she uh, has done a lot of homework, uh, to say the least. But she brings a lot of science to the book, and and a lot of studies that I am not familiar with, and you may not be as well. And then the third, she brings a personal experience uh, from folks that came to her when she was a therapist. Um, and, and real life stories that she can break down. So she brings those three different levels into her book, into this conversation. I think you're really going to like it, whether you're a woman, whether you are dating a woman, you're uh, managing a woman, you work with women, uh, you have a, a sister or a mom or a daughter or anything. I think it helps you to um, you know, help the women out there to help identify where they can be you know, mentally stronger uh, and help the men out there to help you know, really realize 
why men and women are so different in certain ways. And so Amy gets into all that. It's a great episode. Check it out. If you liked what you heard, you can check out more on millennialmomentum.net. I'm Tommy Tahoe on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and everywhere else. So spread some love. Without further ado, here is Amy Morin. All right. The queen of mental strength, Amy Morin, back on the show. Good morning, Amy. How you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. And did you, um, I'm sure you know this, but did you know when you type in how to be mentally stronger on Google that you have the top two articles? I just saw that this morning. Do I? No, I didn't know. You know, I know I come up for a lot of things when you type in mental strength or mentally strong, but that's good to know. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's just, it, you've really solidified yourself um, in the last few years with, now this is the third book that you've written as the go-to source. You're the only there's a lot of people that might bring it up sometimes, but you're the only dedicated resource that I know out there that is talking about this at such a high level. So um, I think it's an important topic. So uh, I love what you're doing with it. Thank you so much. You know, it's exciting to be able to to take what I used to do in my therapy office and now to be able to do it on a, a global scale. It's exciting to be able to do that. So Amy, I know you've, you've written, um, this is your third book. Um, you were on the show last time for the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. You've written about parents. And now this one is specifically for uh, women and the 13 things that mentally strong women don't do. So let's start with this. You know, why this book and why now? Well, a lot of my ideas about what to write about next has come from my readers. And so when the first book came out, I started getting a lot of questions from people asking about how do you raise mentally strong kids? So that's what led to my second book, which was about what mentally strong parents don't do. And after that book came out, I started getting lots of questions from women specifically asking, how do we raise strong daughters and how do we be strong in today's world? And so I was thrilled to be able to to write a book specifically for women. At first, I wasn't sure I wanted to, to be honest, because I thought, you know, mental strength is the same. Whether you're a man or a woman, the skills are the same. And I didn't necessarily want to separate it by gender. But on the other hand, I thought, you know, women are facing some unique challenges. We're raising girls different than we do boys in a lot of ways. And there are so many people out there talking about mental toughness, and it's a Navy SEAL, or it's a, a man who happens to be a firefighter, something like that. And I thought, how do I, I just want to now write a book that talks about how to be a strong woman. Maybe you can still be nurturing and caring. Maybe you can be a stay-at-home mom and be mentally strong. And I just wanted to describe what does that look like? How do you do that? And then, of course, in light of the Me Too movement and everything that's going on there, I thought this is going to be great timing to be able to talk about the real issues that women are facing and how their experience is different from from a man's experience. Yeah, and it's it was so I'm glad you brought up the piece about the Navy SEALs because I'm someone that is probably the stereotype that falls into that, that um, you know, when I think about mental strength, you know, I would think of probably a Navy SEAL that, you know, has gone through hell week or whatever it is. And I'm, and certainly that is a, a display of mental strength and not putting anything against them. But, you know, on the flip side, you know, my mom is mentally tough as nails and she was not a Navy SEAL or, or has done, you know, some of those physical challenges. So I think there's, it opens the conversation that you don't have to be that tough exterior, uh, doing crazy physical challenges and pushing your limits there 
to display mental strengths. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Exactly. And so I wanted to talk about, you know, how do you still be strong and how can you, how can you be a, a nurturing mother? How can you, maybe you aren't a mother too, because there's a lot of pressure on women to be a mom, yeah. that sort of a thing. And to just say, you know, how can you, um, how do we display this? How do we teach people that it's okay? There's a lot of different ways to look at mental strength and how do we embrace that rather than thinking that we have to act like men or that we can't be tough or that you have to do certain things. Just how do you be strong in, in whatever world you happen to live in? Yeah. And you mentioned the way that kids are raised. Um, and obviously you, you've written a book on parenting, but this book also talks, you, you kind of cut it into three sections uh, in a way with each of the topics. So, you know, you talk about people that have come into your uh, therapist's office, people you know personally, situations that have happened to you. Um, you have a section that really get, gets into a lot of research. And there's a section where it talks about uh, maybe public figures or people that, um, you know, you can maybe relate to in a certain situation and they either display or don't display a, a certain level of mental strength. Um, so a lot of the research is done at the at the childhood level. And I'm really curious, like because boys and girls are different by nature, but it sounds like we're also raised differently. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why that is and, and and how we get raised in different ways, whether consciously or subconsciously. Yeah, there's so much research out there about the the differences. And I think it's so ingrained in our culture, we don't notice it, we don't realize it. The way that adults, teachers, parents, grandparents interact with little boys versus little girls. And I think that's where it really sets the stage for uh, the way that kids see themselves, how they view their abilities, how they think about their potential, what they could do when they grow up, all of those sorts of things. And I think out of all the research that I did, one of the studies that really stands out to me the most was the study where they asked little kids, they asked five-year-olds, would you rather play a game for kids who are really, really smart or a game for kids who try really, really hard? And at age five, all the boys and all the girls pick the game for the kids who are really, really smart. So then they ask the kids when they're seven, do you want to play this game for kids who are really, really smart or for kids who try really, really hard? And almost all the little boys pick the game for the smart kids, but almost all the little girls pick the game for the kids who try really, really hard. And so then, of course, it's important to think, well, what happens between five and seven? Why is it that girls no longer see themselves as smart? Well, we know that they start school. So is there something that teachers are doing? Is it something that once they get into kindergarten that things shift? Well, of course, one of the things we know is a lot of the uh, famous and historical figures that kids are exposed to are going to be men. We don't have a woman president. We don't have a lot of famous female athletes. We don't have a lot of uh, women scientists. So then you think, well, how is that affecting kids? What sort of impact does that have on them? Is it teaching little girls that, you know, I can't grow up to do those things because it's men who do them? Uh, so I think it's just one of those one of those instances where it's just really important for us to look at what are the subtle things we're doing that are really affecting kids down to their core being and how they believe and how they grow up thinking and how do we change that because we want little girls to know you can play the game for kids who are really really smart as well and that it's great yeah. to be the one who tries hard but you can also be the smart kid so I think you know that's just one of the many examples I give in the book of uh, ways that I think as a society and a culture we subtle, subtly send messages to, to little girls a little bit differently than boys. 
Yeah, and another study um, was around how we view other people and, and maybe successful people. And, you know, like an example would be, you know, if a woman sees someone really successful or, you know, uh, that they think is beautiful or whatever it is, they say, well, I, why can't I be like that? Like, why couldn't I be like Oprah, for example? And if a guy sees that, and I think you used, I think the, the example was around uh, body image, but if a guy sees, you know, this bodybuilder, it's, he doesn't necessarily think, why can't I be like that? He finds it more as inspirational, like, all right, now I'm going to get after it and I want to use that as a goal and lose weight or whatever it is. Um, and I might have butchered that study a little bit, but I, I was talking about that actually last night with my girlfriend. She, you know, she 100% agreed. Um, and she thought that was, you know, something that, that she had experienced too. So why do you, why is that the case? Is that built within us or is that a way that we're taught as well? I think a lot of that has to do with uh, societal pressure as well, the pressure on women to, to be attractive, to be beautiful. And if you just look at magazines, for example, every woman's magazine is filled with things like beauty tips, uh, weight loss advice. Uh, it's got images of, you know, fitness models in there and then the top 10 tips on how to look like that person. And I think that that is just so ingrained in us. And on social media, if you go to Instagram, there's lots of women on there who are fitness models and bikini models and that sort of a thing. And I think for women, it just uh, something about it is just really ingrained in us to think, oh, gosh, I wish I could be like that. I'd be happier because that's the message that we get. If you only look like that person, you'd be happier, healthier, wealthier, you'd have a better life. And I think it just has this trickle down effect. And now that we live in this world where we see we're bombarded with media images all day long, I think it's really taking a toll on women and their self-worth. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's, it's kind of a situation where you have to control what you can control too, right? I mean, because the media, you can't control what the media is going to put out there. You can't control what's going to be in, uh, you know, one of the magazines or on uh, on the news or all the Instagram pictures you're going to see every day. So how can, how can a woman see all those messages every day? Or maybe, you know, your advice is that she shouldn't see them, but how, she, how can she see all these messages every day, but still... Uh, turn things around mentally to become a little bit stronger to see things in a more positive light rather than, um, you know, let that get her down. I think it's really about just becoming more aware of it. Okay, when I look at this magazine, do I feel better about myself or do I feel worse? Or when I'm scrolling through Instagram, am I happier? Am mm. I inspired? Or do I just feel like I'm a loser because I don't have those things or I don't look like that? And then to just really pay attention to your thoughts. Do you compare yourself to these other people? Do you think... Uh, she looks better than I do. She's happier than I am. I could never have uh, abs like that. But to just pay attention to those thoughts that you have. And then you reframe them to remind yourself that other people are, are different. They're not better. They're not worse. They're just different than you are. And sometimes it's a matter of changing your thinking. And then it's also about sometimes setting limits in your life. Maybe you decide I'm going to only be on social media for 15 minutes a day. And when I worked with people in my therapy office on this, sometimes they had no idea how much media they were consuming until we would purposely say, let's, let's start a log and pay attention to how much time you spend on social media. And I know there's apps and iPhones can do this stuff for you now, but um, I think a lot of people don't realize 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there adds up to hours over the course of the day sometimes. And so when you think, well, I'm bombarded with 
images and messages that are unhealthy for say three hours every day, it could take a toll on how I see myself and how I start to think. So then maybe you say, I'm going to set limits so that I'm not bombarded with that all the time. Um, But I just, I think really the first step is just being aware that it's happening and then coming up with a plan to A, change the way you think and then B, set some limits for yourself. Yeah. And I I mean, personally, that's actually something that I've been working on too, because it's, you know, I found myself just like in line somewhere or killing five minutes by just opening up Instagram and scrolling. And it's just a mindless activity that you don't feel better afterwards and you don't, it doesn't really benefit you. You don't look back on the day and say, wow, I'm so glad I saw that. (laughs) You know, I saw those 12 puppies or whatever you see on Instagram. Um, so it's, it's trying to take that time and make it less of, uh, of a habitual move when you don't know what to do or you don't want to look up to like just go scrolling. Just like keep the phone in the pocket, put it on your desk, walk away. Um, but it's, it's actually frightening how addicting it is and how tough it is to not do that. It is. And I think that, you know, there's a, a, an ironic twist to it for a lot of people, it becomes a way to escape discomfort. So when we're bored, we're anxious, Mm. we're sad, you just pull out your phone and you kind of scroll, but then in the long run, you know, it might entertain you for a few minutes or you might look at a puppy picture and, and feel a little bit happier for a minute. But then in the long run, people are frazzled. They feel less productive. They feel like, I don't know what happened to my day. And then they draw all these social comparisons and it harms you. And I'm not against social media. I use social media all the time for my business, especially. But I think we just need to become more aware of how we're using it and to become more mindful of the time and energy we're putting into it. Yeah. And and to bring it back, just, you know, because we started with you know, how we're raising kids and, and how we're speaking to young kids. Um, you also bring up the example, and this is before we get into even into the 13 things, um, your own personal example uh, of when you were in school um, and, and you talk about a story with you know, kind of a, a teacher giving an unfair um, bonus on a quiz. Can you maybe uh, elaborate on that story a little bit? And if that has, um, you know, helped if that helped you to to kind of inspire to write the book or inspired some of the the changes that you um, work with parents on or or the way that you personally speak to kids? Yeah, it was one of those things that at the time we didn't really think anything of it. And I uh, think that times have changed, but it, I don't think it's changed enough. And so the example I gave when I was in the seventh grade, I had a math teacher and we took I was in a algebra class and it was a really difficult class. And the algebra teacher always gave a bonus question on the test. And the bonus question was always something sports related. It would be about an NFL player or it would be about a hockey game, something like that. So, of course, most of the seventh grade boys were more likely to know the answers than the girls. But it just so happened that uh, I was a bit of a tomboy. I loved collecting baseball cards and I had thousands and thousands of baseball cards and I loved to to watch baseball. So one week I was absent and the teacher had asked a question about a major league baseball player. And I, when I had to uh, make up the test, I got the answer correct. But because I got the answer right, my teacher accused me of cheating. And I didn't say, I'm not going to give you any bonus points. And I was so upset by it. I was really proud. I knew the answer. And I was so hurt that my teacher would accuse me of cheating. And so I didn't say anything, but I brought the test home and I showed my dad. 
And my dad wrote this note to the teacher that said, you can't, you can't keep asking these bonus questions. You're trying to give boys an unfair advantage over the girls. And it's not okay to ask sports related questions. And my teacher then announced to the whole class, somebody's dad thinks I'm sexist. I can't give you these bonus questions anymore. And that was the end of that. But it was one of those moments in my life that at the time I thought it was just about my math grade, but it really impacted me. It was one of those examples of how, and this had gone on for months and nobody's parents said anything that this teacher was giving us these bonus questions that were definitely favoring boys in the class and nobody said anything. And so mm. when I was writing this book, I was really just thinking, it wasn't, it's not something I thought about regularly, thankfully, in my adult life. But as I was thinking about the advantages that boys get in the classroom and I was doing more research on it, the things I was finding, it was quite disturbing. Just the attention that teachers pay to boys compared to girls, the feedback that we give girls compared to the feedback that we give boys. So for example, when a little girl does well on a test, the teacher's more likely to say, you did well because you studied hard. But when a boy does well on a test, the teacher's more likely to say, you did really well because you're smart. And, um, you know, so I think it's subtle things. And I don't think teachers do this stuff on purpose. They don't even realize they're doing it most of the time. And as parents, we don't realize that this is happening in schools either. So I think it's just so important to say, what kind of advantages might we be then giving to boys? And how do we how do we make that shift? How do we do things differently. And something else I found out about our culture specifically here in America is how much boys get a free pass for misbehavior that teachers tend to say boys will be boys and they excuse them for disrupting class. But that doesn't happen in other cultures. And when they looked at the behavior of little boys and all around the world, they found that here in America, little boys act worse than they do in other countries because in other countries, they don't necessarily get a free pass for the boys will be boys mentality. So I'm hoping that um, that we'll start to make some shifts and that we'll start um, not giving boys the advantage in school and we'll realize, okay, what kinds of ways are we treating little girls differently and how might that hold them back or how might it change how they view themselves? Yeah, it's the that example of the way that the teacher structures their feedback, you're, you're smart versus you studied hard, is interesting because from a confidence perspective, being told you're smart is, you know, it feels good, right? Because it's, you know, I'm, I'm in a way superior maybe to other people in the class. But I think it's actually, um, it might be more serving to someone to reward them on the effort versus the grade or versus being naturally gifted because you can control the effort and the effort will help you later in life with all of these different things. Do you, do you find that that, like through your research, that that has allowed women to focus less on results and more on effort? Uh, I'm kind of just pulling something out of thin air, but curious. What you no, think. you're right on target. So, you know, in my parenting book, I talk a lot about that, about you want to mm. praise your kids, say, for hustling hard in the soccer game rather than saying great job yeah. scoring two goals. And the same with school. It can be really helpful to praise kids for their effort. But at the same time, I think because we're giving kids different feedback that the little girl standing there, hears the teacher say to the little boy, you're so smart. And then says to her, you studied hard. And I think it, if, if we treated all kids the same and said, you know, gosh, you all got 
really good grades because you studied really hard, that would be a different message. And I think that then it would be a healthy message. But when we say to them, you're really smart, and then you turn to the next kid and say, you studied hard, it uh, has a different flavor to it. It, it really makes girls think oh, boys are smart and girls try hard. Yeah, that's it, I think the then the overall theme from that one point is like, there just needs to be consistency out there. Um, you, you should treat them in the same manner, focus on the right things, whether it's the effort or whether it's um, you know, whatever it is in the situation, but um, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, they're just not getting the same message and that has longer term effects. Exactly. And I think as kids grow older and as they start to figure out what, what am I going to tackle in life? What, what do I want to do after high school? What am I going to do next? Uh, those messages that they've gotten over the years have really sunk in and they've internalized them. And then it affects what are you going to be? Well, if the boys are smart, maybe that's why they're more likely to become doctors and girls try hard. So maybe that's why they become the nurses instead of the doctors. So I think it's just really important to look at those messages that we've given kids and to figure out, well, no, girls can be the doctors too. And boys can be the nurses. How do we make it so that uh, we don't necessarily shuttle kids into these stereotypical paths. How can we teach them that, no, you can step outside these gender norms that we've held for so long and do whatever it is that you want to do? Yeah. And and to get into the book a little bit too, like, you know, to, speaking to maybe the millennial that reads the book um, and they go through this, the list of 13 things and um, you know, even me personally, this book's not really written for me, but I can relate to some of these and say, you know, maybe there's three things in here that they really struggle with. Maybe they're perfectionists and, you know, they're, they're, they're afraid to be vulnerable and they, you know, downplay their success just to pick three random ones. You know, what's kind of the, f and, and you recognize these flaws and your book helps bring awareness to it. You know, what's my next step? Like I want to maybe set a new year's resolution to, f to help work on one or, or all of these. Like what's the step to take where I'm not going to overwhelm myself? Well, you know, I think you've, you've already hit the nail on the head. So a lot of people think 13, that's so many things. I can't change all 13 things at once. So I think, and we all struggle with one more than the rest. So I think start with one, pick the one thing that resonated the most with you and say, how am I going to give up that bad habit? And then once you identify that to say, well, um, if I give it up, what am I going to do instead? And in each chapter of the book, I tried to give some concrete exercises, small steps that you can take to start to do things differently. And of course, people always want to know, why would you write about what not to do? Well, because I think it's much easier to give up one bad habit that's keeping you stuck and holding you back mm -hmm. than it is to say, I'm going to do 400 new things this year. Just identify the one thing that's slowing you down and then all of your other good habits become much more effective. So if, for instance, your bad habit was downplaying your success, just identify a couple of really concrete things that you can do. How am I going to be able to talk about my success and still be humble but without bragging? And uh, go through the book. There should be um, four or five exercises in every chapter. Just pick one thing that you're going to start with and um, really just get concrete about it. Sometimes we make these big abstract goals, like I'm going to be healthier the next year, or I'm going to eat better. But that doesn't really translate into action. So to figure out what's an action step I can take uh, today, and it's okay to have big goals, like I want to get a new job, I want to uh, lose 100 pounds. It's great to have big goals, but you also need action steps of what am I going to do today to get a little bit closer to that goal. Yeah, I completely agree on 
kind of addition by subtraction. And it's, it's something that I've been working on too, because we, I have a tendency and I feel like a lot of people, if, if you're ambitious, you say, Oh, I want to get these five goals in these five categories done, you know, and I have one for this month and I have one for six months. And I have like a million things that you want to get done. And sometimes it's like, well, actually, if I just stop doing this one thing, if I stop, you know, eating a bunch of sugar, or if I stop checking Instagram 27 times a day, well, I'm actually going to be a lot more productive or I'm going to be a lot healthier and and it's going to get me towards where I want to go. So I love the idea of the addition by subtraction. Good, because, you know, I think for so many people who would come into my therapy office, they would have such lofty goals and and be really motivated to meet those goals. But they didn't really look at what does that mean I'm going to have to give up? Well, if I'm going to go to the gym every day, that means I'm going to have to watch less TV. I'm going to have to spend less time on Instagram. Or So I think sometimes it's just about saying not exactly what am I going to do, but what am I not going to do this year to make room? How am I going to make time? How am I going to preserve my mental energy for the things that are most important so I don't end up wasting it on things that are actually not good for me in the long run? Yeah. How do you, do you do New Year's resolutions at all? You know, I try to usually set some sort of intentions for the next year, goals that I want to meet. I don't like to have a a resolution that necessarily falls on January 1st because I think uh, I want to make sure that I'm ready to meet the goal, that I'm ready to take action. And so, for instance, this year, my book is coming out um, in the new year. So for that first month, I'm going to be marketing and promoting the book. I'm not going to be working on something. So I'm okay with if I don't necessarily... Um, create a big change on January 1st. Um, but yeah, I definitely have goals of things I want to, I want to reach changes I want to make and new things I want to, I want to do. But even in my therapy office, I'll tell that to people, you don't necessarily have to make the change on Jan- on January 1st. That's a date somebody else told you to, to change on, but you don't necessarily have to fall into that. We want to make sure you're ready to actually make the change. And I think that's why so many New Year's resolutions fail after the first eight days is that people just weren't really committed and ready to do it. So if your New Year's resolution is going to take place or start on February 1st, that's okay too. Yeah. And do you, when you find yourself writing a book um about mental strength and as as i mentioned earlier you're you're really at the top of uh, of the herd in terms of speaking about this and, and putting out really quality content and ideas about the topic do you find yourself um ever having uh, kind of second guessing yourself when you're talking about well mentally strong people don't do x thing they don't overthink everything um and then maybe you think you you're not as strong in that area as you'd like to be. Do you ever suffer from uh, thinking those types of thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I have those times where I think, am I worthy of talking about this subject? Because look at the problems I have in my life. And I always try to tell people I come by these lists honestly. I definitely still fall into these traps sometimes. And it's a battle that I fight and then goals that I'm working on as well. And I think anybody who says I don't do any of those things 13 things ever uh, is probably acting tough, not being strong, which is, there's a difference. But yeah, I definitely have days where I think, should I be the one talking about this? Or I think, you know, I just wrote a whole chapter on why you shouldn't do this. And here I am doing it too. But it definitely makes me more aware of my bad habits and uh, inspires me to, okay, create some change. But yeah, I definitely struggle with these things um, just like everybody else does. Is there one of the 13 in particular that trips you up or, or trips up 
a lot of people like that you think is is one that the most people will relate to? Um, you know, I think with the for the women's book, the one that I suspect I'll get the most feedback from is um, that mentally strong women don't overthink everything. And I know that that mm. goes with that. I know plenty of men who are overthinkers as well. But uh, naturally, I could easily be an overthinker when it comes to a conversation I had. If I think, gosh, I shouldn't have said that or uh, I, I said too much or why did I ask that question? Or in thinking about the future too, worrying about what will happen or what's going to be next. And uh, thinking too much definitely keeps us stuck. So if I had to guess which one I'll get the most feedback from, I think it'll be that chapter. I've written a couple of articles about overthinking and I've gotten tons of feedback from people who said, yeah, I can relate to that one. And how do you, I mean, what would you recommend to someone that is like, just because I think I overthink and I know a lot of people that do. And it, I think there's... Um, I don't know too much about it, but there's something about uh, decision fatigue where you, if you overthink all of these small little things like, oh, what am I going to wear today? What time am I going to leave my house for work? What am I going to eat for breakfast? All these little small things that you don't really even have the capacity to, to help make the big decisions. Um, what, what, man, where am I going to, what am I going to do in 2019? Like, uh, what, what's my job going to be? Like the bigger, picture things, you know, what, what, how am I going to help support my family, whatever it is. Um, and we focus too much about thinking about the smaller things. Um, how would you help avoid a situation like that? Cause I feel like that's something that a lot of people might fall into. Yes. And as you say, a lot of people, if we took the simple example of what am I going to wear today? Well, when it comes to appearance, we know that women in particular tend to have more choices. And I gave the example mm. in the book of Michelle Obama, who said every time she wore a particular outfit, it was all through the magazines. People are talking about her jewelry choices, her shoes, everything. Meanwhile, President Obama is wearing the same suit for years and nobody ever comments yeah. on it. And so I think that's just one of those really small examples of women who are constantly thinking about shopping and what to wear and, um, how it's going to be viewed by other people. That's just one extra way that I think women experience decision fatigue. But in general, uh, we know that women are more prone to depression and anxiety. And part of that can be because we ruminate more. Uh, and, and there are differences in our brain that tend to cause women to be more prone to ruminating. Um, and sometimes it's about worrying about the future. Overthinking isn't just necessarily rehashing the past. Sometimes it's also worrying about what's going to happen next. So a couple things that you can do if you tend to be an overthinker, sometimes set a time limit. If you have a problem um, that you're trying to think about what to do next, set a time limit. Give yourself 10 minutes to, to think about it and then decide after that 10 minutes is over, I'm going to move on and think about something else. And to know that uh, you don't always have to be thinking about something to solve a problem, especially if you're looking at a big decision. Should I move? Should I take that new job? Should I uh, start this new relationship? Well, your brain is actually better at solving problems and making decisions when you're not thinking. So when you're sleeping, when you're uh, taking a shower, when yeah. you're trying to do something creative, sometimes the solution pops into your head or things become clear. So I think sometimes to just let yourself do that, know that, okay, if I let my mind wander, I go do something else that my brain's still working on it in the background. And for people who yeah. tend to be overthinkers, again, it sounds ridiculous, but if you schedule time to worry, then you can contain your worry to just say 15 minutes a day. And they've done tons of studies on this where they find that people who are 
chronic worriers, if they say, okay, I'm going to worry from 7 to 7.15 every night, that they can then put it off. So during the day, it's noon and they start worrying about something. They just remind themselves, no, I have time to worry about that later. And I thought that was hilarious when I read that in the book. Like, all right, 8 to 8.30 is my worry time. I'm just going to sit and worry. And the other 23 and a half hours, I'm not going to. I thought that was really funny, but also kind of genius. Isn't it right? It sounds completely ridiculous. But when I've done this with people in my office, they say the same thing like, Amy, no, you don't understand. I worry all day long. But once they do this for a while, the first week, it doesn't necessarily click. But after a couple of weeks, they'll say, you know, I feel okay about it. Because something for people who are chronic worriers, often there's this worry that if I don't worry enough, then I won't prevent bad things from happening. So it's sort of like this exposure therapy of saying, okay, if you only worry for 30 minutes, does your life get better or worse? And I've never had anybody say my life's so much worse because I worry less. And it also just sort of after a while trains your brain to know, okay, I'm going to worry about that later. And then you can concentrate on the task at hand. You can focus on what you're doing right now and be more present in the moment. And then life starts to get a lot better when you aren't constantly worrying and rehashing everything and second guessing all of your decisions. Yeah. And, and we, I love that. And we, we are living in a more anxious time, I think, just given, you know, all the notifications and, you know, work can be 24 seven if you let it and all these different things. And, you know, one question I got from the audience that, I think a lot of people can relate to is the anxiety that comes, uh, unfortunately, from vacation and you're away from or what's supposed to be vacation. And uh, you you tell yourself, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to check email. I'm not going to go on social media. And then one or two days passes by and you're like in your head, well, everything that I've been working on the last year probably is up in flames. I need to <laughs> check it. And then and then you can't even enjoy that you're in, you're on the beach or wherever you are. Do you have any tips for that? Yeah, I think for, you know, depending, of course, on what kind of job you have and what the expectation is. But I think it's so important for us to be able to get away and not be involved in work. So whether it's a one week, an extra long weekend, whatever it is, your mind needs a break. So one thing that you could do, because once your emotions get a little bit high, you start to get a little bit anxious about what's going on at the office. That anxiety then fuels all these anxious thoughts. As you said, you're imagining your business is blowing up, terrible things are happening, that uh, you know the world's going to end, you're not going to have a job to go back to. And the more you think that, the more anxious you feel, and it creates this vicious cycle. So one thing you could do is before you go on vacation, write yourself a list of all the reasons why you should disconnect from work. And then when you're on vacation and say day two, the anxiety kicks in and you're really curious, you're wondering, read over that list of all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. And sort of that logical list can help bring down your anxious feelings, help you make a better decision. And you might, if you might be somebody who says, I just want to check in once. So maybe you say, I'm going to check in on Thursday. I'm going to just check in for a minute, set a clear time limit of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is. But I think it's best if you can completely unplug because I think we've all had those times where you think I'm just going to check my email for a minute and then you check the email and then you can't let it go and you have to respond and it turns into a lengthy conversation or it ramps your anxiety up even more. And so to know when you're on vacation, what are you going to do about it? Probably not much. And that that's okay. And that plenty of uh, successful people in the world are able to unplug. If they can do it for a week, you can probably do it for a week too. 
and just give yourself permission. And if you feel anxious, that's okay. Sometimes um, learning how to tolerate the anxiety is really good for you to know that you don't have to. And maybe you have a plan before you go too, so that, all right, if, if the building literally catches on fire, this is the phone number where you can contact me. And then, you know, when the phone doesn't ring, okay, everything must be okay if you... Um, Yeah, so I think the main the main piece there, and uh, for the listeners, that you, you have to make a plan, um, and it's going to be a lot easier if you write that letter to yourself, or if you have um, some sort of plan of action that you tell your your coworkers or your employees. So it's not all down to your willpower um, at the end. And you know, something that I was thinking about as I was reading this book is that. Like you know, the elephant in the room. I'm I'm not a woman, right? I'm a man, and um, you know, I'm a son and a brother and a boyfriend, and I I worked for women and with women and their friends and all these different things. So how can how can a man read this book and maybe take things away of and and work better and communicate better with the women in our lives? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because so far we've gotten the uh, advanced copies out to tons of men as well as women. But mm. the feedback I've been getting from men from a lot of them is, number one, I find I did a lot of these things in this book as well. Yeah. So I'm hoping to apply it to my own life. But secondly, I hope that men who do read this book will have a better understanding of just of our culture and society and sort of these subtle things that go on. And then to be able to better understand the women in your life. And if you are a parent to know, how do I raise a strong daughter, but also how do I raise sons in a way that um, is, is helpful to them? And how do I raise them to treat women, to think about girls differently? How do I treat them in a way that is going to be healthy for both of my kids or all of my kids, if you have a, a big family, but to know that, um, I think that the world is, is changing. We're seeing some shifts. Things are slowly evolving. And the more knowledge we have, the more aware we are of what's going on, the, the better that we'll all be. Yeah, and it's it, it does help to bring, you know, the awareness is the first step. So it's it's understanding, you know, if you're, let's say, my sister, you know, says something. And I, you know, why is she saying that? Why does she think like that? Like that, I, I'd never think like that. Well, Let's maybe bring it back to the study that happened of, of what may have happened when we were five years old and how she was treated or what she was taught. And it just it gives you that advantage to to see things through the other person's perspective um, and, and helps to add that awareness. So I'm trying to take that into my daily approach with all the women that I interact with um, and, and hopefully make me a better communicator and, and someone that's, uh, you know, can more easily see their point of view. I'm happy to hear you say that. And I hope that more people do that too, because I think even as a woman who has uh, been a therapist for years and studied this stuff in college, just the more studies that I researched and the more information I found, the more interviews I did with women, the more that I learned. And I think that we can just keep learning more about um, all of these issues in society and gender and how we're treating women and how we treat little girls. I think that we'll all be better people because of it. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and, you know, maybe as like a next step, you know, people read the book and I saw this tweet of yours. And I think it's just so applicable for like taking the next step, especially as you're, you're starting the new year and you want to kick it off strong. And you say, you know, decide what kind of life you want to live, 
write it down, become the person that you want to become and make it happen. And it's simple. It's not easy, uh, but it's a great, I think, next step for, you know, take this time at the beginning of the year over the holidays to think about, you know, who you want to become, the small changes that you want to make. And then, you know, write it down, visualize it, and then just just start doing it. Just start taking those little actions uh, of taking things away, adding things, whatever it may be. Um, and slowly but surely, you're, you're going to become that person that you want to be. It's one of the simplest, but I think most effective pieces of, of advice I know. Just behave like the person you want to become. If you want to be a friendlier person, act friendly. If you want to be a, uh, a smarter, more successful person, ask yourself, what do smarter, successful people do? And then follow in those footsteps. Sometimes we, we overthink things or we wait until we feel confident or we think we have to, uh, to feel differently before we can take the next steps. But if you want to be a confident person, act confident now and change your behavior first and the confidence comes later. So I think just do it. Go out there and say, how do I behave more like the person I want to become? And then you can start changing your life right away. Awesome. Powerful words. Um, and can you take a minute to let everyone know outside of just, you know, maybe Googling mental strength, where we can find you, where we can find the book, any any other details around that? Sure. So my website is Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensedclinicalsocialworker.com. And there's articles on mental strength, information about my books, my TEDx talk. And then my book will be available pretty much wherever books are sold. And I'm super excited that Target is going to have a special edition. And so it will have the 14th chapter of what mentally strong women don't do. And that one will only be available at Target. So I'm excited about that. Awesome. Well, everyone, whether you're a man, a woman, you know women, um, anything, you check out the book, um, get it. Yeah, I mean, maybe go to go straight to Target to get. Can you do it uh, online, like Target.com, or do you have to go to the store? Yeah, it'll be available at Target.com as well as in the store. Well, check out the 14th, or else you're going to be missing out on something that everyone else will know. Check out the book and and make sure to check out Amy's writing. Um, her blogs are great on her site and and you're on a bunch of other platforms like Inc. and Forbes, I think, and, and some really big names. So thanks so much for, for joining, Amy. And thanks for having me again.